Hi, and welcome to another episode of A Shot Glass of Recovery with your host, Julie, half of the dynamic duo that brings you two sober chicks. Hi, welcome to April 16th. We are in part three of the Forward Journey series, The Miracle of Step 12, and I am reading from the amazing book, 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, which is the sister book to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Each chapter is dedicated to a step, and if I were only allowed one chapter or one step out of this book because I was being quarantined on a desert island, it would be step 12 because it's a beautiful synopsis of the program. So I'm going to continue from where I left off yesterday. Our basic troubles are the same as everyone else's, but when an honest effort is made to practice these principles in all our affairs, well-grounded AAs seem to have the ability, by God's grace, to take these troubles in stride and turn them into demonstrations of faith. We have seen AAs suffer lingering and fatal illness with little complaint and often in good cheer. We have sometimes seen families broken apart by misunderstanding, tensions, or actual infidelity who are reunited by the AA way of life. This is so true. I have seen families ripped apart by one of us and how we have been brought to the depths of despair by our addiction and have ruined our families, whether it's by infidelity or drunkenness or incarceration or financial drain and you know not usually very quickly but once into recovery for an amount of time that our family members look at and trust families have come back together Um, daughters talking to mothers sons talking to fathers nieces and nephews talking to aunts and uncles best friends coming back into the fold relationships rescued It just takes time. It takes time to undo the damage, but it's a really good way of showing the people in our life that we can be trusted again. Though the earning power of most AAs is relatively high, we have some members who never seem to get on their feet money-wise, and still others who encounter heavy financial reverses. Ordinarily, we see these situations met with fortitude and faith. I'm going to make a post on that, fortitude and faith. I have it circled in our Instagram today. It will follow the gratitude and grit one that I did last week. Like most people, we have found that we can take our big lumps as they come. But also like others, we often discover a greater challenge in the lesser and more continuous problems of life. Our answer is still more spiritual development. Only by this means can we improve our chances for a really happy and useful living. Excuse me. And as we grow spiritually, we find that our old attitudes towards our instincts need to undergo drastic revisions. Our desires for emotional security and wealth, for personal prestige and power, for romance, and for family satisfactions— All these have to be tempered and redirected. We have learned that the satisfaction of instincts cannot be the sole end and aim of our lives. If we place instincts first, we have got the cart before the the horse. 
we shall be pulled backward into disillusionment. But when we are willing to place spiritual growth first, then and only then do we have a real chance. For me, this is talking, when it talks about instincts, is talking about feelings. So feelings are great passengers and horrible drivers. Um, Another way that it's said by an ancient mystic is feelings are great slaves but horrible masters. If I let my feelings pull me in, it says right here, they will pull me backward into disillusionment. So I'm going to use my recent breakup as a little bit of an example. Every day I miss this man. Every day I am so close to calling him and reaching out because that's what my feelings want to do. And I know if I do that, I will be pulled back into something that is not good for me. Um, One of the ways that I've been coping lately is saying, I'll do that tomorrow. Isn't that so sweet? Like, I just have such tenderness for that little girl part of me. I'm like, you know what? We'll do that tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and I'm like, we'll do it tomorrow. When it gets really bad, that's what I do. I say, we'll do it tomorrow. Um, But if I let my feelings be the passenger instead of the driver, I can look at them and thank you for their backseat driving and then know where I'm going and, and aim my car due course. So I really love that this step step talks about instincts because we've ruined our instincts in our addiction. Um, Our instincts are, I want that, so I get it. We're very in-the-moment, impulsive people. I need a drink. I need a drug. I need to have sex. I need to shop. We're always ruled by our instincts. And then we have to understand and right-size those instincts when we get into recovery and learn how to pause and learn how to really tap into the selves that is connected to our higher power and know how to rightly apply those instincts and help him to um, redirect us. Sorry, I just got distracted. Um, I suffer from atypical migraines that are completely unpredictable. And sometimes I feel like I'm seeing something that is telling me that I'm going to have one. And for a moment, it really scares me. And then I get to sink into uh, the moment and say, if that happens, then we'll deal with it in a little bit. But as of right now, I am not going to let fear run through my body like an electrical charge of adrenaline and scare me when it probably won't happen. So that's just me sharing real time about an anxiety I have. After we come into AA, if we go on growing our attitudes and actions towards security emotional security, and financial security, commence to change profoundly. Our demand for emotional security for our own way had constantly thrown us into unworkable relations with other people. Though we were sometimes quite unconscious of this, the result always had been the same. Either we had tried to play God and dominate those about us, or we had insisted on being over-dependent upon them. Where people had temporarily let us run their lives as though they were still children, we had felt very happy and secure ourselves. But when they finally resisted or ran away, we were bitterly hurt and disappointed. We blamed them, being quite unable to see that our unreasonable demands had been the cause. Really controlling others is a sign of insecurity and intolerance um, to accept that we don't have control. 
when we had taken the opposite tack and had insisted, like infants ourselves, that people protect and take care of us, or that the world owed us a living, then the result had been equally unfortunate. This often caused the people we had loved most to push us aside or perhaps desert us entirely. Our disillusionment had been hard to bear. We couldn't imagine people acting that way toward us. We had failed to see that though adult in years, we were still behaving childish, childishly, trying to turn everybody, friends, wives, husbands, and even the world itself, into protective parents. We had refused to learn the very hard lesson that over-dependence upon people is unsuccessful because all people are fallible, and even the best of them will sometimes let us down, especially when our demands for attention become unreasonable. As we made spiritual progress, we saw through these fallacies. It became clear that if we were ever to feel emotionally secure among grown-up people, we would have to put our lives on a give-and-take basis. We would have to develop the sense of being in partnership or brotherhood with all those around us, which is equal, right? Being in a partnership or brotherhood or a sisterhood is all about equality. We saw that we would need to give constantly of ourselves without demands for repayment. That's real love, right? Loving to be loved is not love, it's manipulation. When we persistently did this, we gradually found that people were attracted to us as never before. And even if they failed us, we could be understanding and not too seriously affected. Um, I have friends that fail me all the time. (laughs) And it's been a real gift to me that even though it may sting and my feelings may get hurt, I don't have to take up every hurt feeling or stung feeling up with everyone. Once I remind myself that this person loves me and they don't mean me any harm, and I surround myself with really good people, by the way, I can love people and allow myself to be loved in all of my character defects. And it just is so much easier to give up that control and be like, listen, they're fucked up, but so am I. So they continue to love me. I think it's really easy to look at other people and be like, you know, this person's hard to love, or I don't like this about that person. But like, I cannot only imagine the things that irritate the shit out of the people around me. And they're so gracious, they never point out. When we developed still more, we discovered the best possible source of emotional stability to be God himself. We found that dependence upon his perfect justice, forgiveness, and love was healthy, and that it would work where nothing else would. If we really depended upon God, we couldn't very well play God to our fellows, nor would we feel the urge wholly to rely on human protection and care. These were the new attitudes that finally brought many of us an inner strength and peace that could not be deeply shaken by the shortcomings of others or by any calamity not of our own making. I love that because once I really tapped into the fact that God loves me. God doesn't just love me. He's totally in love with me. He adores me. I am his beloved. And why should he or why would he or why does he when I harm his children, I harm his creation, um, Mother Earth, 
Uh, I have horrible thoughts about people. I disrespect myself as one of his holiest creations. I have lied. I have cheated. I have stolen. I have cursed him. And he still loves me. And I think having that kind of love from my higher power has helped me see that that's how I want to love people. Because if it feels this good to be loved by him no matter what, I want to do that for other people. Because his grace and mercy and love is an unmerited gift in that I don't have to do anything to deserve it. And if someone, you know, recently in this recent relationship, I was told that this man did not deserve me. And I really hated that. Because I don't, I don't like that kind of language. Like he, as he is, is deserving of so much. And if God thinks I'm deserving so much of how I feel when he talks to me and the love that I have from him, as a child of God, I don't believe anybody is unworthy of love. It may not be a good fit. He may be a right bastard or a stupid idiot or a whole host of other things. One of my best friends says he's not worthy to wipe my snot. Another one doesn't refer to him by name and says he who shall not be named. That's all fine. But I don't like the deserving or unworthy language because God does not look at me like that. And therefore, he does not look at this man like that. This new outlook was, we learned, something especially necessary to us alcoholics. For alcoholism had been a lonely business, even though we had been surrounded by people who loved us. But when self-will had driven everybody away and our isolation had become complete, it caused us to play the big shot in cheap bar rooms and then fare forth alone on the street to depend upon the charity of passers-by. Ooh, that's good. I get such a visual in my head of like the belligerent drunk who is playing the big shot in a bar and then walks out onto the street and is so pathetic and is stumbling down and has to rely on the charity and goodwill of others um, to get home. Ooh. We were still trying to find emotional security by being dominating or dependent upon others. Even when our fortunes had not ebbed that much, and we nevertheless found ourselves alone in the world, we still vainly tried to be secure by some unhealthy kind of domination or dependence. For those of us who were like that, AA had a very special meaning. Through it, we begin to learn right relations with people who understand us. We don't have to be alone anymore. That's my favorite slogan, you are no longer alone. Because you guys showed me... I'm not this nut bar. Well, I am, but (laughs) that there's others like me and I found my people and therefore I can relax around you guys and just say all of the secrets in my heart, like our secrets secrets keep us sick. It's also how um, shame and guilt demand punishment. We will lash out from that either at ourselves or at others. But when we expose those things to people around us that get it, then... I don't know, I think we just sink more into our humanity, which is the very thing that we're afflicted with, right? Most married folks in AA have very happy homes. To a surprising extent, AA has offset the damage to family life brought about by years of alcoholism. But just like all other societies, we do have sex and marital problems, and sometimes they are distressingly acute. 
Permanent marriage breakups and separations, however, are unusual in AA. Well, I guess I'm unusual. Our main problem is not how we are to stay married. It is how to be more happily married by eliminating the severe emotional twists that have so often stemmed from alcoholism. I'm going to stop there. Um, I realized once I got sober that I never had a real relationship with many people in my life because I could only have a relationship with them through alcohol, which then means I was in a three-way with alcohol and this other person. Um, But what it really means is that I had a relationship with alcohol. So I found myself much more able to be affectionate with my stepdaughter Um, until I did a lot of work on my childhood, I was very uncomfortable around children. And with her, it it translated into my relationship with her. I raised her from when she was two till when she was 12 in my marriage. And um, it was only then that I could be like cuddly and affectionate with her. So I really didn't have a real authentic physical relationship with her until I had booze in my system. So it was really booze and I that... uh, could bring me to the point of being comfortable with that. And so once alcohol was removed, I found that a lot of my connections were revealed to be what they were, which was inauthentic, false, um, artificial relationships. And that, I mean, alcohol damaged my relationship, but my relationship was damaged before I began alcoholically drinking. But it was a real eye-opener. And that's why the relationships that I have formed in recovery are so pure because they're because of a bond of truth and vulnerability with people and nothing can take that away. And my most strongest relationships, most of them have come through recovery and through that tether of truth and honesty and the very best in people. And so I hope if there are people listening right now, if you haven't found that in community yet, I encourage you to keep going. I know it's very hard right now because we're all in self-isolation and Zoom is the extent of the connection we have to our fellowship. But even that is better than nothing. So there are fellowships all over this world. Um, I noticed in particular, by the way, Seattle, we have a big listenership in Seattle, which I've never been to Seattle. I'm more of an East Coast girl, but I've always wanted to go there. So thank you, Seattle listeners. And thank you wherever you are tuning in from around the world. I feel you. I see you. I'm so grateful and appreciative to you. And I will be right back here tomorrow, April 17th, 2020.